Welcome back to From the Bridge. This is our next to last episode of season two, and I'm glad you're with us. This is your host and captain, Rick Jones of Fishbait Marketing. Today's episode is all about execution. We've talked a lot about how culture beats strategy, but how strategy is also so important. But execution is where the rubber meets the road. It's where we make our money. It's where we deliver value. My guest angler knows all about delivering value. Emily Evans serves in the role as vice president of strategic initiatives for the Country Music Association, the trade association of all things country music. She works regularly to put on the CMA Festival and was a huge part of last month's CMA Awards show. We'll jump back up on the soapbox and head out once again on the road with Rick. The essence of fish bait is the term you have to fish or cut bait. You have to do things in our business. You can't just talk about things. Like Nike says, just do it. Execution ultimately separates successful organizations from those less successful. Execution requires discipline, perseverance, and yes, borderline obsession. I love to cook and I spend a lot of time in my kitchen. Talk about execution. Cooking may be the ultimate execution task. You can have five-star recipes, fresh organic ingredients, and expensive cooking utensils, but it all comes down to how you use them, how you execute. For my various businesses, execution starts with my daily to-do list. The weekend before each and every week, I outline my weekly to-dos by day. And then I rewrite my daily list in specific half-hour increments the night before. I also keep an annual calendar with key events, meetings, and activities, and refer to it daily. Importantly, my to-do list comes directly from my written business plan, enabling me to prioritize activities and maximize my outputs. Our executional activities mirror the needs of both our clients and the marketplace. We find there's a certain rhythm to our business with specific deliverables on certain days of the week. And so we plan our weekly activities based on a variety of external elements. For example, we hold our weekly staff meetings early on Monday mornings to identify what everyone will be doing that week and to make sure all the activities we've prioritized will get done in a timely manner. We also talk to all of our major clients each and every Monday. Why do we do that? We do that to share with them what we will be doing for them that specific week and to highlight what is coming up. This allows our clients to understand we have a real plan for them each and every week. We rarely, if ever, try to sell anything on Mondays. You've heard me say this before. All God's children hate Mondays. So we try not to pitch anything new on a day when people are not necessarily in their most cheerful and expansive mind frame. Conversely, all God's children love Fridays. 
So we love selling at the end of the week. I try to make my weekly schedule pretty consistent. Again, on Mondays, I lead the staff meetings and participate in all those client calls. On Tuesdays, I like to work on projects and sales proposals. On Wednesdays, I write. I update social media. We post the podcast. We do a variety of those things. And we also, I spend about two hours every Wednesday working on long-term planning. But then I try to be out in the marketplace making sales calls on Thursdays and Fridays. We often sell sophisticated and complex marketing programs And I like presenting late in the week so the prospect will think about my proposal over the weekend. You will, of course, have to build time in for the unexpected and know which things can wait until later. In running a business, there will always be interruptions and fires to put out. Whether it's a staff member dealing with an unplanned family issue or a client weathering an unexpected crisis or perhaps a major unexpected pandemic like the coronavirus that creates unique problems for no fault of our own. But perhaps there's no problem at all, but rather some unique and timely new opportunity that, that you know, absolutely deserves immediate attention. Another major time killer is those unexpected and unscheduled telephone calls. I try to schedule all my daily calls in advance. When I do get that unexpected call, I'll often let them leave a message first, then listen to see if it needs my immediate attention. I also tell people that I will call them at unique times, like 10.38 a.m., so that they will remember and they'll realize that I truly am busy. I also use a variety of time and executional management tools like uh, Microsoft Outlook and Trello and Slack and various apps on my smartphone to keep me on schedule and prevent me from dropping any balls. But the real key to my executional success is simply sticking to that to-do list. At the end of the day, execution is all about predetermined results. You should never be surprised when things work out favorably, but only surprised when they did not work out. You've planned in advance for success, and therefore success should never be a surprise to you or anyone else on your team. Flexibility is important, but productivity is most important. Remember to avoid confusing activity with achievement. The fact that you're busy does not make your busyness effective. As a business owner or a manager or a team leader, or even as, you know, simply as a teammate, you have to make sure that each and every activity gets you closer to achieving your goals. A big part of this is knowing what and when to delegate. A business owner like myself needs to do just the things that only he or she can and leave the rest to your teammates. Your detailed plan should help you make these delegations uh, easy and make those decisions for you. Nothing is a bigger time killer than jumping in to solve every single problem as it occurs. As the old country song says, you've got to know when to hold them 
and know when to fold them. Sometimes, as the song says, you just need to walk away and let your staff members do their job. Or better yet, run away to really let your staff do their jobs. But finally, let's talk about accountability. You, the business owner, or the team leader, or even a team member, can assign both task and responsibility, but never accountability. The buck always stops with the leader, period. It is up to you to closely monitor the execution of your teammates to ensure they are accomplishing their goals in a timely manner. At the end of the day, business is all about planning your work and working your plan. Execution is nothing more nor nothing less than implementing your plan daily. My guest angler today is the lovely and talented Emily Evans. Emily's had a great career in country music and she'll be here to talk about what she's done in the past and what she looks forward to doing in the future here from the bridge. Hey, Emily, thanks for being with us today from the bridge. I am glad to be here, Rick. Listen, you uh, you grew up as an athlete. I always saw you as working in sport rather than working in music. Uh, <laughs> how, how, how did how did tell me tell everybody about your journey? How did you get in the music business? Yeah, I I definitely did grow up an athlete. I played basketball. I mean, I, probably from the time I was eight years old all the way through high school and a little bit in college, and uh, also played softball, slow pitch, and fast pitch, and pretty much loved every sport there was. Um, but I also love music. I have zero musical talent. I cannot play an instrument, uh, but I loved music. Uh, my dad, thankfully, took my sister and me to our first concert. I was six years old and he took us to see Springsteen. Um, so he set the bar pretty high, uh, but I was just always, you know, just fascinated mostly with the lyricism of music. I love lyrics. Actually, my junior year of high school, we had to write a research paper and it could be any topic we wanted. And in whatever year that was, 90. 798, I don't know. Um, I chose to write about the meaning behind the lyrics to Don McLean's American Pie. No idea, really, <laughs> in that time and place why that's what I picked, but I just remember being fascinated by stories behind the words. Um, so, you know, I loved both always. I just happened to participate in sports and, and you know, was very athletically inclined. Um, but then as I got into college and was just a, just a business major, you know, didn't really know what I was going to do with that, but at some point in time, I made the determination just to myself that I didn't want to go into kind of the more typical, you know, post-graduation jobs that I saw a lot of my older friends doing, which were going to banks, going to, you know, insurance companies, going to the Hertz Rent-A-Car Manager and Training Program. And, and none of that interested me, but I was passionate about sports and music. So I just decided for myself that I was going to pursue a career in one of the two. Um, so that that's kind of the decision that I don't want to say it changed my path, but it determined, you know, what I was going to focus on. And um, later that same year in college, my friends and I went down to a, a concert series in Atlanta, Georgia. It was called On the Bricks, and it was a weekly summer concert series. It was free. And I remember during a set change, I just was looking at everything happening on the stage. And it was the first time it ever dawned on me that people work to put these shows on. Like there were people and companies behind what I was enjoying 
from the concert. And so I just flipped the ticket over to see if there was any information. I mean, I was clueless about the music industry, um, but flipped the ticket over, found a company name. Um, company doesn't exist now, but it, at the time it was called Mad Booking and Events. And so I went back to, you know, my college dorm and looked them up and found out they had an office in Atlanta and also one in Nashville. And from that point, I just bugged the crap out of the company's owner, um, Marcy uh, Allen. And eventually, once I graduated, convinced them <laughs> to give me a paid internship. And it was, I mean, I could not have survived on the money I was getting paid, but I was thrilled to be there. I moved to Nashville a week after I graduated. Um, and that's what set my trajectory in music and have been in it ever since. So 16 plus years at this point. Well, we have a lot of young people that listen to our, our podcast. And I think two things resonate here for them. One is find your passion. You know, we, we had, we had Tim McGee on a few weeks ago and he said, you know, he, he, he did the typical thing out of Cornell. He went, you know, wanted to be an investment banker and he he said he got there and he hated it. You know, you, you knew early on, I'm going to hate this. I I don't, (laughs) I'm not going to survive in a bank or in a, you know, uh, we, we, we like to call those people suits. I'm not going to be a suit. Um, and and that's, so that's, that's a real key thing. But secondly, you, you just, you you dogged her. I mean, you just were like, (laughs) I'm I'm not going to take no for an answer. I'm going to do whatever it takes to get a, a toehold. And I, I tell yeah. everybody, you know, you got to kind of know somebody to get a first job. You got to know something to keep it. Yes. But you yeah. you got to know, and I, and I try to encourage people all the time, grow your Rolodex. And in this case, you know, the back of a ticket led to a contact that led to a career. That's, that's pretty neat. Yeah. Yeah. And the kind of full circle on that is Marcy is now, one of the members of our board of directors at CMA. So, you know, it, it circled out, by the way, I worked, um, I was an intern for about six months and then they hired me full-time as a full-time employee. Um, and I stayed there for a little bit. And then I went with Marcy to her second company that she started Mac presents, um, which she still operates today. But, you know, I worked there, worked with Marcy for about four years and then fast forward, I guess, 10 years after that. And she came back into my life. I mean, we had stayed in touch, but she came back in as a CMA board member. So it was kind of a really interesting, you know, circle there to come back to that. Next lesson, never burn a bridge. Never burn a bridge. Ever. Absolutely. Because you go, you go yeah. get down that road and go, Oh, there's a dead end. I gotta, I gotta yeah. turn around and go, go back over that bridge. I just burned. Yeah. Uh, and people, Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And, and I tell everybody, you know, the sports and the music business, it's the most incestuous businesses I know. I mean, the, the, yeah. there's not six degrees of separation. There's <laughs> usually about one. And, yes, and so true. I think people need to do that. So, so then what did you do? So, so like I said, I was with Marcy with two companies, Mad Booking first and then Mac Presents. And Mac Presents, she started um, in, in one of the rooms in her house. And that's where I worked from for the first several months that Mac existed. Um, and the, the premise of the company was to kind of broker the deals between artists and, you know, brands. And at the time it was of course being done mostly in sports, not really quite as much in music. There was still definitely a, a bit of a stigma for artists. They felt like it was more of selling out if you took a tour sponsor or did an endorsement deal. So kind of the artistry of being a musician kind of prohibited a lot of them from opening, you know, being open to those kinds of opportunities. But, you know, we 
during my three and a half years there, we did tour sponsorships for John Mayer and Tim McGraw and Tim McGraw and Faith Hill sold a soul tour and did a lot of, um, a lot of deals with Blackberry and Jeep and just a lot. And, and, you know, Marcy was smart when she started that company, she had a background in booking. So there was still that side of the business. We would book college festivals, college shows, um, for performers, but she was growing that business on the side with, with partnerships and really kind of bringing together music and companies, uh, which is what Mac stood for. Um, and, and it was a great, you know, learning ground. That's for sure. Uh, I, I, if anyone had ever asked me at any point in my life, what a sponsorship was or what a partnership was, I, I would not have been able to define it. I, you know, the little bit of experience I had when I was at mad booking is I brokered a deal with a local pizza company with a ticket exchange. So we gave them, you know, X number of tickets, uh, that they could use as, you know, hospitality for any important customers they had to come down to the Nashville festival, um, dancing in the district. And, you know, we did a trade deal. So that was the first thing I had ever done. And it was super small scale, but I didn't even know what that was when I was doing it, to be honest. Um, and then she developed that company into one that's done millions of dollars worth of endorsement deals, partnerships, you know, all that kind of stuff. So I was there for, for four years or almost four years with Marcy. And, um, you know, at some point just decided I was ready to, to try something different, try something new. I was ready for a different challenge. And, and that is something I would say has become a theme in my career. Um, and so at that point, I, I left Mac Presents. I knew the time was just right. I actually didn't have anything lined up at that point. I just knew it was a time to move on. Um, and, you know, Marcy was super supportive of it. And so were the other you know colleagues that I had at the time. And so I didn't know what I was going to do, but I had luckily, speaking of not burning bridges, I had, you know, formed a relationship with a gentleman who worked for Tim McGraw um, because we had done two sponsorship deals for for his tours. And um, he I, I ran into him at a McGraw show and we just chatted for a minute. And, you know, he said, I'm not telling many people this, but I'm, I'm you know, going to leave McGraw's camp and I'm going to go work for this younger young artist. And when I get there, if there's any kind of opportunity for you know, to bring somebody on, I'd, I'd love to connect with you. And I said, well, sure, absolutely. So I think maybe a month or so went by, um, and his name's Robert Allen, by the way. And, and Robert called me up and he said, so I'm working for Taylor Swift and want to see if you'd like to, to come in and, and meet with us and see if there's, you know, an opportunity for you here. And at the time, you know, this was 2008, early 2008. So at that point in time, Taylor had only put out her first self-titled album, um, so it was definitely very early in her career, although she had obviously made a substantial impact with her first album, um, especially doing it differently than most artists had as far as building her career. Um, so anyway, I eventually, you know, came in for an interview and they hired me for a pretty ambiguous job. Um, but they they definitely valued my experience in partnerships at that point. Taylor already had a couple of deals with brands and they had some more opportunities, you know, potential opportunities already in their hands. And so I kind of worked on several of those in the early days, but I also, you know, had to run out to the house and, you know, just outside of Nashville and pick up something that they had left behind when they were on the road and, you know, drop it in the, the mailbox to get it to them. And so it was a very wide ranging, um, you know, role to begin with. And it was, you know, essentially a startup. There were just a couple of us and, uh, but eventually, you know, as, as time progressed and I was with Taylor for five years. So, that year she ended up putting out her second album fearless. So I was with her for fearless speak now and read albums and tours. And, um, I always oversaw the partnerships. Um, that was at least the core part of what I, 
I did. So managed, you know, relationships with CoverGirl or, you know, in developing the fragrance line with Elizabeth Arden, you know, all that kind of stuff, Diet Coke. Um, but I also, you know, was part of the mix in, in everything we did at the company. I at least was aware of everything going on. And there was a, a gentleman who very much became a mentor of mine. Um, his name is Bob Coffey, and he used to call me the hub. And I never, at the time, I honestly was never sure if that was a compliment or not. But uh, in retrospect, it was. And, you know, looking at where I am now, I can see that those were skills that um, they've served me well. And I think it's a, an area that now, where I am at CMA, are becoming even more important um, because I'm kind of in a position now where I'm not just in partnerships. So I just changed, you know, from, from partnerships to strategic initiatives. But, but at any rate, um, I was the hub, as Bob would have said it, for, for Taylor at 13 Management and had, you know, an amazing experience there. I got to uh, travel the world. I got to be part of, you know, partnership deals and experiences that in some cases no artist had ever done before. And certainly she is so incredibly talented and to be that close to someone who's just that talented. I mean, there's just, you can't even define it. You can't bottle it up. It is just unique and it's powerful. Um, and it was just a great, great experience. So, well, here's another key lesson for young people. Somebody sent me the resume the other day and said, I got five years of experience. And I said to him, you know, not really. You got one year of experience repeated five times. <laughs> and, and and that's not a good thing. I mean, yeah. you know, you got, and, and I think if you look at your journey, you had to get out of your comfort zone. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you, you were probably comfortable where you were, but it's not where you wanted to go. Yeah. And, and it's interesting. I say <laughs> one of the things that I have realized is I still right now don't know exactly where I want to go. And I still remember saying to Sarah Strayhorn, who is the CEO of, CMA, I remember in my interview with her, you know, she asked a relatively standard question, you know, what do you want to be doing in five years? And I said, Sarah, I I do not know. I do not aspire to a certain title. I do not aspire to a certain salary. All I know is that no matter what job I'm in, I want to be really valuable uh, to the company. I want to bring something to the table that the company appreciates. And I want to constantly evolve and learn. And I said, as long as I'm doing that in a job, I know that I will be content. Um, and that's, that is absolutely something going back to your point, even in Taylor's organization as incredibly, um, impactful and just amazing that experience was, it got to the point where I was just saying, you know what, I I've done three albums. Yeah. Been been there, done done that. Yeah. Been there, done that. And as much as, you know, clearly her career has gone on to be even bigger since I left. Um, and there would have been things I could have done that I couldn't have dreamed of. I was ready for a new challenge. And so in 2013, similar to what I'd done with, with Mac Presents, and I, I, by the way, I don't recommend this all the time, but I, again, left a job without a backup plan. Um, I just knew it was time to move on. And at that point, I actually took a considerable amount of time off. I had um, just decided I needed to kind of reprioritize my life and spend time with people that mattered and get back to being myself because it had been a certainly a very high pressured, high paced job. Um, so I took a pretty extensive amount of time off at that point and, you know, walked 500 miles across Spain and, and spent time with my family and, and all that stuff. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, it, it was definitely for me just a realization and that's something that I, I definitely know now and definitely advise people. It's, you know, you're in a job for whatever the reason is, whether for 
if that point in time it's about the money or if that point in time it's about the growth or if that point in time, you know, whatever it might be, just be aware of the reason you're there. And for me, like I said, the, our CEO and I interviewed for me, as long as I'm evolving and learning, I want to be in a job. And, and luckily that's what I've been able to do at CMA. And I've been there a little over six years now. Um, and I've been able to do that. And, and thankfully Sarah as a leader has, um, understood that need for me and, and helped me find opportunities within CMA that allowed for that learning and growth for me. So it's been a, a great experience so far there. You know, I've run agencies, Lord, for 35 years now. And I think part of that is is constantly looking at the people that work with you and figuring out how to take them someplace else. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and, and that's contrary to, you know, a lot of people say, oh, wait a minute, they're billing, they're, they're great, to replace them in that job is going to be painful, but that's not fair to them. I mean, you, you right. know, it's not about you, it's about them. Um, and I'm, you know, and Sarah's one of my favorite people and, and obviously Saul, Hey, you know, you've been in partnership marketing. There's more here. Let's create more value. Um, she promotes you. She promotes Tiffany who was running Mm -hmm. the foundation again, because (laughs) boredom is a terrible thing. Uh, I mean, it just is. Uh, I had a a boss one time. Tiffany and I are alike in that way, that's for sure. (laughs) Yeah, I had a boss one time that told me, my best boss ever, Chuck Jarvie, said, Rick, you're never going to make any money. And I said, well, why is that? He goes, you get bored too easily. (laughs) And he's right, I do, because making money is not the primary goal in my life. It's to have new experiences and new opportunities and be a lifetime learner and all that. So you got a cool job now. You're the vice president for strategic initiatives (laughs) at a trade association. I, um, I spent 13 years as the marketing director of a trade association, the national association of basketball coaches and, you know, herding cats, that many coaches, (laughs) but that's nothing like the cats you heard. I mean, you, you, you've got the entire country music industry as a part of CMA. Talk, talk a little bit about mm-hmm. the complexity of the organization. Yeah, it, it is. It's unique. And certainly I, coming into CMA, I knew of its solid reputation. I had obviously worked with a handful of people there in my experience with Taylor. Um, but really all I knew about it was its reputation and its TV shows. And I had watched, you know, the CMA awards, you know, as a, a teenager when I got into liking country music and, so I honestly didn't know much about it, but getting into it, you, and I wouldn't say you learn it quickly, but you do eventually see what a unique proposition it is as an organization. So yes, first and foremost, it's a trade organization. It's a 501c6, um, and we are meant to serve our members. Um, it's unique. I mean, so, you know, you talked about being part of the Basketball Coaches Association to a degree, I would imagine. Um you know, you guys could create opportunities for those coaches. Maybe it's speaking engagements, maybe it's, you know, whatever those opportunities are, having them band together to create some kind of cohesive opportunity with us. We're, we're not just representing the artists. It's not just the people you see on our stages that we represent. Yes, there are a whole lot of artists and I think that's our biggest membership category, but we also represent label executives and management companies, bus drivers, trucking companies, you know, they're all part of the ecosystem of the music industry. Um, and they are members because of what we offer them. And 
And so it's a unique place to be, especially on the marketing side, I would say, because a lot and, you know, partnerships did sit under the marketing umbrella at CMA and, you know, the structure was we reported up to the CMO. And so when you sit on the marketing side of it, it's this really interesting dichotomy of, yeah, we need to promote our TV shows. We need to make sure people are tuning in. We need to promote ticket sales to CMA Fest, to the CMA Awards, you know, all these kind of standard marketing exercises um, and practices. And of course, the, the theory behind all that is the more we get artists on primetime broadcast television, that is creating more opportunity for them. Um, back in, you know, 10, 15 years ago, you, you never saw country artists sitting down on the couch um, in a late, on a late night show, or you rarely saw them on morning television. And certainly um, us being able to provide a primetime spotlight on the genre was beneficial because they just weren't getting you know, the, the time on, on the biggest mass media platform that there was, which is television still is. Um, so if, of course the, the intention or, or sorry, the tactics of the industry has, or the, uh, trade association has changed, but the purpose is still serving our members. And so from the marketing side, you're working on all these things about tune in and selling tickets and whatever. But on the flip side, you know, you also want to showcase really young talent, uh, through our social channels and make sure that they're getting a presence on our website, or you want to think about, you know, the, the songwriting community, you want to think about, you know, the publishing community. And so it's this really, I said early on while I was there, I was like, man, it's almost like we need to just completely duplicate our staff and have one dedicated to the public side, you know, tickets and TV shows and all that. And one strictly dedicated to the member side, because both are full-time jobs for everybody who's there. And, um, you know, we are, we are serving the membership through the public things that we do, but we also do a whole lot behind the scenes um, in serving our members. And you mentioned Tiffany, who's Tiffany Kearns, and she's the executive director of the CMA Foundation. And and now, uh, I hope I get the title right, I think she's also VP of Community Relations. And, and that means, you know, engaging with the membership and uh, engaging with the music community. And there is just so much that that team is doing and has done at CMA for years, um, whether it's, you know, webinars or networking opportunities, um, just, you know, there's just a lot more to CMA than the public sees. And, and it is a really interesting place to sit because sometimes even on the partnership side, you know, there were a lot of times we would turn down opportunities or not even pursue certain opportunities, even if the money was there, because we would rather have a partner who understood the trade organization side of us and said, okay, we can surely, we can give you X number of dollars, but we can also do this for your members. And so that, that's, an interesting place to be, you know, because you've got revenue goals, of course, but on the other side, you're looking to find opportunities uh, for the members. And and by the way, it's a very diverse membership. Like I said, it's it's not just the artists or songwriters; it's also truck drivers or uh, managers. So it it's a it is certainly a unique business, and it has evolved tremendously in the six years that I have been there. Just in not only what we do, but how much we do. And and I can say firsthand, um, this is one of if not the, the one of the most hardworking and productive staff of people, there's only 54 of us, I think. Um, and we do a lot in a 365 day year. Um, and again, a lot of it, the public sees, but a whole lot more the public doesn't see. Well, then we get this ridiculous curveball called COVID-19. I mean, yeah. I mean, you know, you know, listen, so many industries have been affected, but I, I, I can't think of any that have been more effective. Mm-hmm. affected than the music industry. I mean, you've got, yeah. you know, like you said, when there are no tours, you got a guy that drove a bus 
unemployed. Yeah. You got a guy that did lighting unemployed. You got a guy that mm-hmm. set up stages unemployed. Um, it, yeah. You know, and I, I have to think that kind of the scope of the trade association has had to pivot too to realize we got to take care of our members or we at least got to provide them with a sense of hope. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, it's been, um, it's been a really, and you can relate to this. I know Rick, it's been for, for the nerd in me, the, the learner in me, I've been so fascinated by this experience. It has been exhausting and it has been heartbreaking. Um, but I have loved to to watch how our company and, and the industry has pivoted. And so th- again, I was talking about kind of the dual path of the trade organization a second ago, and it, and it has also come to light in this time because we had the path of, okay, we've got a, a festival that happens in June that brings 80,000 plus people to downtown Nashville. And so we had that, that we were having to look at and go, okay, what do we do? Can we do a festival, et cetera. But then on the other side, we were saying, well, we serve a membership base of over 7,000 people and what do we do to support them in this time? And of course, that has evolved since March of this year. You know, what we thought we could and should do for them then is incredibly different now because you're right. You know, I think I think it's hard for just most people. First of all, I don't think most people think about the entertainment industry very consciously. You know, you listen to music or you watch a sporting event on TV, but you don't think about, again, the business behind it, just like I never had until that one day in Atlanta. Um but I think if people do think about it, they think about the star on the stage. They think about that Taylor Swift or that Dirk Bentley or the Carrie Underwood, and they think, oh, they're fine. They make a ton of money. And, you know, I can't say whether or not those artists are fine or not. Um, certainly they make a lot of money, but there are so many people's livelihoods that depend on that one person walking on that stage every night. And that trickle down has been heartbreaking. I mean, everyone from the band to the crews to the merchandise companies to the busing companies, the trucking companies. I mean, it is. And then you get into the venues. You know, if someone was going to play Bridgestone Arena in Nashville, Tennessee, yeah, there's a hundred plus people coming in with the artist that the artist is employing, but there's a hundred people or more in that building. The Selling popcorn and beers and yeah, doing security and parking attendants. And I mean, the trickle down is enormous. I, you know, I'm like you, I love song lyrics and I, I I tend on the show to quote the gospel of Jimmy Buffett a lot. And, (laughs) and, and, and Buffett has a song called a pirate looks at 40. And I've been using that line that said in 2020, my occupational hazard being my occupation's just not around. And uh, it's, it's been that kind of year, you know, when you're in the events business and there are no events, then you have no business. And, and the margins, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, Hey, superstars have different levels of margins, but you know, people that are just trying to make a living for their families and then it, for no fault of their own, the industry just vanishes. I mean, literally yeah. just vanishes. Yeah. Um, yeah it's, um, it's heartbreaking. It is. And that's, that's what's been, I mean, I think for myself personally, just inspiring and heartwarming to see how CMA has reacted as a trade organization. And again, Tiffany, who we've mentioned, and Sarah, our CEO, have just risen to meet that challenge. And I've, luck, I've been lucky to be part of the conversations to develop a really – broad support plan for our industry. Um, it's not something that's yet public in any kind of big picture way, um, but we're already doing things, we, you know, from the get go, we were providing resources and, um, you know, links and, and information on the, the PPE, oh, no, I was about to say PPE, but the, uh, the loan 
the loans that were available to small businesses. Yeah, the FBA loans. Yeah, um, you know, just providing information to them. But now we're kind of moving into a phase where we are, we're looking at a broad spectrum of needs that our industry has. And by the way, we're not just looking at it for the members of CMA. We're looking at it for all of music and anyone who needs the help, we're going to try to find the help that they need. So that's, you know, it's far ranging from still providing resources to also providing some workshops now about career transitions or resume writing. Um, it's getting into just the basic human needs of food and shelter. And we are supporting, we are identifying nonprofits to partner with to make sure that those nonprofits have those, you know, certain assets and certain opportunities available for those who do work in the music industry. And, and like I said, this isn't a public as far as we've made a, a big statement about it or anything like that. But our, our members are, are very well aware we're pulling together other trade associations, other organizations in music. And again, it's not just about country. It's not just about CMA. We're pulling people together to say, OK, who's doing what? Where are we missing opportunities? How can we band together to make what you're doing and what you're doing and what we're doing even more powerful? Um, so back to my, my hub comparison, CMA right now is trying to be a hub for resources and, and be a, a, a place that, that, again, our members or just the industry at large can come and say, I need X. Can you either point me in the right direction or can you help me, CMA? And it's been it's been so inspiring to see our staff get behind it because we've asked a lot of staff to take their normal you know day job hat off and say, we need your help on this industry support initiative. And everyone has done it willingly. Our board has supported it without hesitation. Um, and it's been, it's been incredible to be a part of that and to see it happen. And, and there's more, even more we're going to do. Um, Cause it's, you know, there's no end in sight at the moment for the live entertainment, live music business. So we can, t- you know, we plan to continue to support our industry for the next several months um, on that front. Well, let's talk. You, you, you're, you're having to do almost two distinct kinds of jobs. On one hand, you're having to look at now, mm-hmm. but also in your job now as a vice president for strategic, strategic initiatives, you have to kind of look around corners. You know, yeah. we, we believe the vaccine's close. We believe that'll be a game changer. But you, you got to live in, okay, I got to deal with my membership today. But you also, you, you're having to look out and say, what should we be doing long term mm-hmm. as an organization? And those are different skill sets. <laughs> Getting up and yeah. doing your today's to-do list is a whole <laughs> lot different than reflecting about what do we look like six months from now, 12 months from now, 24 yeah. months from now. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, it's you're so right. I mean, the it's kind of become a not a joke, but it's just true. Like the meetings that we're having right now um, that I'm part of with Sarah, that I'm part of with other people on our staff. I mean, we are, you know, we have a meeting from one to two and it is strategic, whatever that might be, you know, talking about, you know, CMA Fest for 2021 or, you know, just something that's big picture. What does all of 2021 look like? What does the next three years look like for CMA? You know, all that kind of stuff. We're looking at that. And in the very next meeting, we're simply looking at the tactics of coming back to work. What's that going to look like for our staff? And I mean, the, the switching, um, I mean, it's turning on a dime, uh, from one meeting to the next. And that's, that's how it's been for nine months. Um, and you know, that, that's normal, you know, that you have to be able to look at things strategically and big picture and long term. but there's also some tactics, but, um, it is, it is exhausting and just mentally draining to have to do that pivot constantly, um, from big picture, long term to, oh my gosh, you know, what is it we're telling the staff about when we're coming back to work or what is it, you know? Um, and I've been again, lucky to be a part of that and, and watch the leadership of 
of Sarah, but also our, the officers of our board, you know, um, and have learned a lot and have been, I'm very grateful to have experienced this as awful as it is. Um, but yeah, I mean, right now, like I said, we are actually really talking about the tactics of coming back to the office and what that's going to look like here in Nashville. Um, but at the same time, we're saying, okay, we had a strategic plan in place that had, you know, five key pillars for the organization. And it was something that we, I believe it was the end of 2018. We, you know, said, this is our roadmap for the next, you know, three, three ish plus years. And we completely had to, well, we didn't throw it out the window. We still had to, we still believe in the pillars that exist, but right now, like our next, you know, big discussion with a senior management group is to say, okay, let's look at these strategic pillars and let's say, let's identify the really important tactics to make an impact. What do we need to get rid of? What do we need to add to still meet these objectives, but in a totally different way? Because we, you know, we didn't have 80,000 people in downtown Nashville this year for CMA Fest. Will we in 2021? We're not sure of that yet. Right now, I don't think it will be a full-on CMA Fest like it usually is, but that's part of what we're doing. We're saying, how do we put on a festival that, that really checks three boxes. Um, one of those is serving our membership and giving them a, you know, an opportunity for exposure to fans that may not normally see them. Uh, it's filming a television special for our broadcast partner, ABC. Um, and, you know, also there's the, the revenue side of that, just a cash flow standpoint. So, you know, we are looking, we've been looking at that for the last couple of months because, you know, back when we postponed the festival, when we made, made that decision in April, we thought awards would be normal. We thought next year's festival would be completely normal. We had no inkling, of course, that we would still be having the same conversation nine months later, but we are. Um, so again, you know, we're looking at the fest as a tactic to support the pillars, but we're also going, okay, all these tactics that we've been focused on, how do we need to evolve those? Um, and so that, you know, that's one of the big things we're trying to kind of sink our teeth into here at the end of the year. And we're going to dive right back into in January is, you know, how do we still serve the mission of CMA in this completely different world that we're in? And again, it's both a strategic conversation, but also down to the, the tactics, because our normal tactics um, just aren't, most of them are just aren't feasible. Well, I, every year this week, you know, I, I sit down and start writing our strategic plan for 2021. And I, I wrote down on page one, the do-over. Um, you know, I, I felt like we had a great plan for 2020, but the truth is it's not a do-over. You know, I, I've laughingly told everybody we want it to be like Dallas, the TV show where they fired Bobby Ewing in, 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 in a contract dispute and they killed him off and then they realized <laughs> it was a mistake. So the next year he, he walked out of the shower and his wife fainted and they said, oh, it was just last year's entire series was a bad dream. Um, you know, we, we all want 2021 to be like 2020 should have been but it's not yeah. it we've yeah. we've changed i mean we have behaviors have changed businesses change I, I traveled like a madman in the past and i've realized you can do things on zoom you can you yep. you, you you i mean there's a little work-life balance that's a little i don't think people are going to go back I, I don't think people in the Northeast are going to get on trains every day and come to the 74th floor. Of yeah. I mean, I just think there's yeah. going to be some tremendous changes. But the good news is what you do. People can't wait to be back together at a festival, no, at a concert, yeah. at a small club venue. We yeah. are so ready 
to be back. Absolutely. Um, absolutely. I mean, I, it's so funny. I, any TV show I watch or movie that's, you know, from the past, if there's a large crowd, I have this weird, like COVID anxiety. I think, Oh my gosh, they shouldn't be together. And then of course I have to realize, well, that's a movie from, you know, 2015 and it was fine. Then. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I mean, I think you're right. People, just the working environment in and of itself, like certainly we have proven, at least with our staff, you know, proven we are just as productive separately, but, you know, being able to connect, you know, via email and teams and video chats. Um, but yeah, you know, you lose a lot of value as a company, um, not having your people together, just those, you know, drive by chats that happen just cause you're, you happen to walk past somebody's desk or, you know, very just impromptu conversations that may or may not be about work. There is such tremendous value in that personal relationship that is, you know, built and fostered in the walls of your office. And, you know, certainly we've lost that. We've tried, of course, to do things to, you know, to still let people just have fun together, even though it's over a Zoom call, but it's just not the same. And so you're, there's certainly a value that's lost, but on a productivity side, yeah, we have proven that that it's not necessary to be in the same building. And, and I think most companies will have to evolve their, you know, working plans, you know, giving people more flexibility to work from home or work from the road or whatever that may look like, which, you know, that may be a really good change overall. It, it's certainly going to have an impact on a lot of other industries, you know, real estate and you know all that. So again, there's just this tremendous trickle down, but, um, but, but yeah, I mean, it, it will definitely just change things going forward. I don't know. I don't know if or when it will ever feel normal. Like you said, it's not a do-over. We keep calling 2021 our bridge year and hoping that. That's a good term. I like that. You know, just, yeah. yeah, just where we're maintaining and still pushing the envelope where we can. But we, we are hoping that 2022 settles back into live, con- you know, full-on live concerts and, and, you know, not holding anything back, hopefully. Because, you know, music and and I'm such a lover of music like it just it brings a lot to people's lives and especially that live environment a live um experience with an artist that you love is it it just has so much positivity to it and it's one of those things that probably can't be scientifically defined even but it's you know it's just an amazing part of the life we live and I cannot wait for the day that I can go back to a a show and not have to think twice about the coronavirus. Well, I also think in a year of so much social unrest, you know, one of the things I love about music is it brings us together instead of yeah. separating us. And I think we've really missed that. I mean, at a time yeah. that, you know, we had, we had, we had a, you know, a, a ridiculously ugly political election. We have, you know, so much social unrest um, mm-hmm. at COVID. I mean, all this at the same music is a healer. Music yeah. just does that. It it, mm-hmm. and we've missed that. I think that's something. We we just got a few more minutes. I want to go back to your trip. Your, uh, you, so you take some time off, and you walk the road to Santiago. You walk the way. <laughs> Charlotte and I were supposed to have done that last May. We had mm. scheduled the whole month. We had the whole month yeah. of May. We we're going to Spain. We were going to walk, and of course, COVID came, and you, you yeah. can't fly to Spain. At that time in May, Spain <laughs> was like the epicenter. You know, it's yes. like I'm like, no, well, yeah. we're not doing this. Uh, but yeah. t- t- but tell me about that experience, and tell me more importantly, what did you learn about yourself? Yeah, um, I, I do love talking about this experience. So, um, you know, the path you're talking about is called the Camino de Santiago, the road to Santiago, and I learned about it. I've I had two really good friends. They don't live in Nashville anymore, but, um, they were neighbors and 
we ended up watching this movie together called The Way. Um, Great movie. Martin Sheen. Love it. Yes. Yeah. Martin Sheen and Emilio Estevez directed it, I believe. Yeah, he did. For yep. a little bit. Yep. So, you know, it tells the story of, you know, um, Martin Sheen on the Camino. And I had never heard of this this trail, if you will, before. And I'm a hiker. I, I enjoy, you know, getting out with my hiking shoes on and being in the woods. And, you know, I just love the the beauty of nature and I love you know, being on a trail. Um, and this is different from like the Appalachian trail or, or anything you might see around here where there's a, a defined beginning point and a defined end point. This is more of a pilgrimage. So anyway, we, we watched this movie and I was fascinated. And so I looked it up and immediately ordered just like a, a tour guide book for it and just started reading about it. And as I read, you know, it, it and by the way, I'm, I'm still working for Taylor Swift's organization at this point. I, I saw the movie in 2012 and as I read the information on it, it became clear that I couldn't do it. I mean, every every recommendation was plan to take four to six weeks off. You're going to need four to six weeks to finish the walk, to, you know, to get there, to get back, all that. And I thought, well, that's crazy. I can't do that. I'm, I'm employed and, and I need to be employed. Um, so I kind of, you know, put it in the back of my mind, but I was still incredibly fascinated by it and, and wanted to do it. Um, so kind of early in 2013, my, my thought process on whether or not to stay um, at 13 management, you know, was evolving. And I was getting to that point of saying, you know what, I, I think it's time for a new challenge. Um, and again, like I said before, I, when I made the decision that I was going to leave, to leave um, I didn't have something else lined up. So it, it all of a sudden dawned on me, well, Emily, now's the time. You, if you choose, you can take the four to six weeks that you need to go do the Camino. And so that's what I did. Um, I think I booked my flight, uh, I think the beginning of May and I flew out at the end of May. So, you know, just four short weeks that in between actually officially making the decision to go and, and getting on a plane to go is pretty, pretty short turnaround, all things considered. But, but I did I actually, I flew into France. So the, the pass that I did is the one that's featured in that movie. It's called the French way. Yep. And so I started in a tiny little town in France. Uh, I'll probably pronounce it wrong, but it's called St. Jean Paille de Port. And it's just on the other side of the, the foothills of the Pyrenees mountains. And I flew over by myself and I set out on this 500 mile journey. Um, and you know, for anyone who, who doesn't know, like I said before, it's, it's a pilgrimage. It's a, an old Catholic pilgrimage where, and the reason there's not just one path, it's because people who were came so from moved, different places. Yeah. Came from, yep. walked mm -hmm. out their front door yep. and just started yep. walking. Yep. Um, but this particular path had been developed over centuries um, as kind of a more common and populated path. And, and therefore it had a lot more infrastructure to it, meaning that there were more pilgrim hostels along the path. So I wasn't going to have to be afraid of not being able to walk far enough to find a place to sleep. Um, and so I, I set out on this little journey. I, I got to this little town in France and it was pouring rain. And I, the one of the only hostels I actually booked in advance was in this town. And I found the hostel and I walked in and met four people as we were all checking in. And, um, and funny enough, uh, the very first day that I was supposed to start walking the Camino, we were advised not to. The weather conditions were just so bad that, and because we had to go over the, the foothills of the Pyrenees, they were just saying, don't do it. It's too risky. So the very first day of my 500 mile walking journey, I took a cab from 
from this little town in France down to the other side of the, the mountains and started walking from there. So I did walk my first day, but I also took a cab and it felt like such a big cheat to me. Um, but anyway, these people I had met at, at the hostel, we, we set out together and walked together for several days. It was pouring rain, you know, et cetera. Um, to, to fast forward a little bit, I still keep in touch with these people. I did walk the rest of the 500 miles. I never took another cab, but luckily for me, I had finished earlier than I anticipated. And my sister was going to come meet me in Spain just to do proper tourism, to go to Barcelona and Madrid and Seville. And so I had some spare time. So because I felt so guilty and like I hadn't completed what I set out to do because I'd skipped that first portion of the walk, I took buses and trains back up to the town where the cab had dropped me off. And I started walking from there backwards in reverse. I wasn't walking backwards, but I was walking the trail backwards. To make sure you um, completed the whole journey. To make sure yeah. I'd done the whole thing. Um, That's cool. Yeah. And I was, I was so glad I did it. Like it didn't mean anything to anyone else, but it mattered to me that I did what I'd set out to do. Um, and so, yeah, I, I walked 500 miles in 30 days and, um, you know, you asked what I learned and, uh, you know, I, I did not have any life altering epiphanies. I didn't come back and, you know, utterly change any part of my life, but what it, what it served for me in that time was exactly what it needed to serve. And for me, that was disconnecting, not having to look at my email and phone and text every two minutes. Um, I was able to just settle into my own thoughts to talk to people I would have never otherwise met. I became good friends with a woman who at the time was 50, I think she was 56 when I met her. Her name is Juanita. She was South African, but had married a Swiss man. And so she'd been in Switzerland for 25 years and they owned, um, martial arts studios, um, in Switzerland and in Africa. And, you know, just fascinating, fascinating stories. And so for me, what it allowed me to do was just set the reset, hit the reset button. Um, and you know, when I came back, I just was more ready to engage in real conversation with people. I mean, because for the 10 years of my career before I was listening to whatever somebody was saying to me, but my, the other half of my brain was thinking about what emails am I getting right now? What should I be doing right now? Work related. And so I was only partially present. Um, and coming back from that, I was just a lot more present and I, I knew I wanted to be. And, and so for me, coming back and just getting to talk to people and really listen to people and not have my brain somewhere else was such a, an amazing transformation for me and something that I'm intentional about even to this day, um, even though, you know, my circumstances are different. But uh, I just really learned the value of being true to yourself, quite honestly, and, and doing something that I'd set out to do, um, but also just how valuable the time is that we get with the people who are in our family or the people we choose to bring into our families and and friends and all that kind of stuff. So for me, it was just a reset button at the right time. And for me, I, like I said, I'm a hiker. So just getting to be out walking this path, even though it was very different, like I said, than walking an Appalachian trail. Um, it's, it's just what I, I needed. Um, you know, and then people have asked, would I do it again? And the answer is, if you're asking me, did I enjoy the experience and would I recommend it? Absolutely. Yes. Yes. Would I do it again though today? No. It was what I needed then, and if there's ever a moment in my life that, you know, I need to hit another reset button, I'm not going to go back and do it on the Camino. I'm going to find 
something the other else. Right yeah, yeah you know, I'm going to find something else. You know, Coach Wooden, <clears throat> John Wooden, used to talk about something that I never really understood until this year. He would talk about what he called the precious present. Mm. And he would say, look, you, we all learn from the past, but we can't get any of it back. And we all plan yeah. for the future, but it's not here. Where we fail is to take advantage of what he called the precious present. Can you yeah. be intentional about now, today? And, you know, clearly in a, I got to look at my phone and what am I missing? Somebody's yeah. after me. You know, the ability to say, and, and this year for me, and I think for you and for everybody else, we realize the only thing we can control is probably the next hour. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that. yeah. I, I, that's it. I mean, that's that's about yeah. the extent of the control, and and I and, and in a weird sort of way, or maybe not a weird sort of way, you're you're walking the way allowed you to understand the precious present today. It was this walk, these people, this conversation, this hostel, yeah, and then we'll deal with tomorrow. Tomorrow, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and for me, I was. I think I was 31 when I did that walk. And I mean, that's, I know that's young. I know in the big scheme of things that's young. So I feel incredibly thankful that I learned that lesson that early in my career and that early in my life. Cause I, I, I have seen people who get much further along in their lives and, you know, miss out on things with their kids or whatever it is and don't quite realize that until a lot later. So I, I feel fortunate that for me, I felt it enough in my being to step away, hit the reset button and, and take the time to learn those lessons. Um, cause now I will, I will always have them, you know, in my decision-making process and in my, like you said, my presence, that's always going to be part of it. And I'm glad I learned it that early in life. Well, I think your whole career and you got a long ways to go, but it has been, it's been about taking chances. It's been about getting out of your comfort zone. Um, I yeah. mean, not many people watch a movie and go, okay, I'll just go fly to France and walk 500 miles by myself. I mean, you know, but I look at your whole career, it, 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 and it's not been taking, it's not been taking risks that were adversely r- risky, but yeah. it was about looking yeah. at opportunities and saying, hey, I can do that. I, I, I can do that. Listen, you've been great today. A lot of life's lessons for for everybody. We're all hoping and praying for a real CMA festival in June. Yes. Uh, but yeah. if we don't, we know that y'all will pivot. You will uh, adjust. You'll do whatever it takes to make sure that the industry remains vibrant. And I'm excited about what the future holds for you and what it holds for the organization. And I can't thank you enough for being with us today from the bridge. Well, I have enjoyed it, Rick. Um, I've loved this. I've loved this conversation with you. I'm glad we got to chat. Um, And it's certainly, I certainly do appreciate the personal and professional relationship we've developed since I came to CMA and got to meet you. So I appreciate you asking me to be a part of this and hopefully, hopefully people enjoy it. Well, great. Happy holidays and we'll talk soon. All right. Thank you, Rick. Here's my thought today from the soapbox. As we get closer to Christmas, especially in a year of COVID-19 and our isolation, I remind everyone it's a great time to reach out to friends to see how they're doing. In the kind of year we've had, it's easy to focus internally on ourselves 
or only on our immediate family members or our associates and clients. But this week, let's all reach out to old and new friends alike. Remember the old saying, make new friends, but keep the old. One is silver, the other gold. As I get older, I realize how much old friends mean to me. Those who've been a part of my life and success for a long, long time. I'm going to call a lot of old friends this holiday season. I hope you will too. That's my view from the soapbox. Speaking of old friends, one of my oldest and best friends is Kevin Plate. Kevin worked with me once, for me twice, and was actually my client on one occasion. He lives out in Los Angeles and has had a bad run of poor health in recent years. He's a South Carolina boy, and I recently saw him at his mom's funeral in Columbia, South Carolina. Several years ago, Kevin was living in Marina Del Rey. Yes, the same Marina Del Rey from the classic country song by George Strait. I was out visiting with Kevin, and he took me to a terrific place at Venice Beach. It's the CNO Trattoria, a great Italian place with enormous servings of pasta. They also have an honor system on wine. They have big jug wines on the table. And you note how many times you fill up your glass. And so, therefore, you pay by the glass. But they do a fun thing to get you to drink more. Every hour, they pass out the words to the song by Dean Martin, That's Amore. And they play it, and you all sing together and clink your glasses and drink more wine. I once took my friend Christy Atkins to eat there while we were on a business trip. We lost Christy to cancer in 2019, and I'm glad I have the memory of that meal with her. Like so many other restaurants around the country, the C&O is closed right now because of the COVID-19 virus. I hope it opens again soon so we can toast to our friends with great wine and terrific pasta on the road with Rick. Well, we've got one more show to go in season two. I hope you'll join us next week for a very special season ending show from the bridge.